Good morning. I'm Mike Overstreet, a pastor at E3. And this is week two of our new series, What a Wonderful World, where we're exploring the Old Testament prophets. And if you missed it, I highly recommend you listen to last week's sermon on Vimeo or on our podcast, because that's where we set up the context of these prophets, who these figures were, how they fit into the biblical story. And that context is important because the prophetic books are some of the most, entire, most challenging books in the entire Bible. They seemingly operate in the opposite way as the song that the series gets its name from. Rather than paint an image of a wonderful world, they seemingly hammer us on its brokenness. They use woes and warnings that make them dark, intimidating, often despairing. And yet, Underneath their critiques is a profoundly hopeful and beautiful vision for our world. They challenge and deconstruct the brokenness they see in our world, not for the purpose of despair, but rather to invite us to see God's vision of goodness for what our world is and could be. To see the potential for divine beauty that saturates it and to allow that to motivate us to bring more of that beauty, more of that divinity to reality, to teach us to face the brokenness of our world, the things that often make us want to despair. And yet through divine eyes, it gives us the potential to gaze through it and sing with hope. What a wonderful world this is and could be. And this week, I've been thinking about who plays this prophetic role in our culture today. Who calls out our idols? Who speaks truth to power in our larger world? And honestly, I kept coming back to one group, stand-up comedians. You see, so often, these are the people that seem to point out the problems in our world, and, and they expose their absurdity by poking fun at them. In particular, I thought of one comedian, my personal favorite, Bo Burnham. You see, he's this comedian who's too smart for his own good and adept at exposing the absurdity of some of the assumptions that we hold about ourselves and our world. And obligatory, he's not PG. In fact, he's quite R-rated. So if that offends you, please do not go home and Google him and then email me. You have been warned. Anyway, I want to talk about Bo for a second. You see, he has this special called Make Happy. That's fascinating to me. At the time of its release, Bo had mysteriously taken a year off from comedy, returning with this biting hour on fame, performance, being a public figure and celebrity. And it, at first, it seems like it's just classic Bo. But as it ends, he begins to set up this finale based on something he saw at a Kanye West concert. Essentially, he sets up this, this little ending where he rants about his problems over auto-tune. And I, it's actually pretty hard to describe. So it's easier just to show you a part of the bit. So we're gonna roll a minute of this clip. I can't fit my hand inside a Pringle can. I have a huge amount of trouble fitting my hand inside of a Pringle can. I can get my hand like four inches into the can, but then I have to tilt the can into my mouth. But by that point, a bunch of crumbs have accumulated at the bottom of the can. So they all go spilling out of my face. What I'm trying to say is the diameter of Pringle cans is way too small. I'll say it again, the diameter of Pringle cans is way too small. Two radiuses of a Pringle can is way too small. If you feel me, put your hands up. 
Come on. If you feel me, put your hands up. Look at all these hands that are way too big to fit inside a Pringle can. Your hands are too big to fit inside a Pringle can. Your hands are too big to fit inside a Pringle can. You think you can? I know you can. You think you can? Pringles, listen to the people. I am sure 90% of the complaint letters you get are about the width of your cans. Just make them wider. I've overdone the Pringles thing. Sorry. I wanna have a daughter. Wanna have a daughter. So I can finally have someone around the house who can fit their hands in a Pringle can. Yes, I'm still on the Pringle cans thing. Yeah. I'll, I'll move on, all right? But that is priority numero uno. You get the gist. He shares about the gym and then Chipotle and how they make his burrito too messy. And as he astutely points out, no one wants a messy burrito. It's silly. Not PG, but silly. It's just a silly bit about his mundane problems that gets us laughing. And then, suddenly, this happens. Pretend like my biggest problems are Pringle cans and burritos. The truth is, my biggest problems, you. I want to please you, but I want to stay true to myself. I want to give you the night out that you deserve, but I want to say what I think and not care what you think about it. A part of me loves you, part of me hates you, part of me needs you. Part of me fears you, and I don't think that I can handle this right now. Handle this right now. I don't think that I can handle this right now. I don't think that I can handle this right now. I don't think that I can handle this right now. I don't think that I can handle this right now. Look at them, they're just staring at me like, come and watch the skinny kid with a steadily declining mental health. And laugh as he attempts to give you what he cannot give himself. I don't think that I can handle this right now. I don't think that I can handle this right now. But they don't even know the herb of this right It's an unbelievable turn. The entire set, the entire hour changes. You see, apparently Bo stopped performing for that year because he was having panic attacks on stage. He had developed crushing anxiety towards the audience over their assumed expectations, how they perceived him, the role he presumed he played in their lives, how he thought he was seen in their eyes. It's a powerful moment that exposes the troubling truth underneath our obsession with celebrity. But more than that, it hit me, it stuck with me, because I relate deeply to the struggle 
it describes. The truth is my greatest problem is you. Part of me wants to please you. Part of me wants to be true to myself. Part of me loves you. Part of me hates you. Part of me needs you. Part of me fears you. And I don't think I can handle this right now. For me, this captures part of our humanity. This sense of separation that exists between us and other people in our minds. This root of self-consciousness where we try to see ourselves, to judge ourselves through the eyes of others, and it just produces such fear in us. It's a pattern, really, when you think about it. We wonder to ourselves, what does X person think of me? And we try to answer that by focusing on the differences between us, to presume almost always negatively how that other person must perceive those differences and then to start thinking of them as a gap between us. Evidence that we are fundamentally different, better, worse, more, less than the other person. And out of that perceived gap flows shame. We presume others will see those differences that we see and they'll judge them as unacceptable. They become something that we feel compelled to hide, to fear people seeing. And when we fear those perceived differences, shame produces harm. Those perceived gaps become the basis for seeing others as fundamentally less dignified, worthy, valuable than ourselves. And that's where harm comes from, if you think about it. We don't seek to intentionally harm people we see as the same as us. No, we do that when we perceive separation between us and them. Because if there's a separation between us and them, then we can justify not treating them as ourselves, as we would want to be treated. If they're less than us, then of course we can steal, kill, oppress, destroy. Hate those we want to love. Fear those we truly need. Shame, harm, separation is at the root of it all. And this video kept coming to me as I prepared this week because I believe this separation is something that the prophets speak to over and over and over again. It's one of their core themes and messages. They hold a deep conviction about where the sense of separation comes from and they believe more than anything that it must and will end in the story that God is writing for us in our world. And in that, they offer an invitation into a beautiful vision for us in our world, where separation is replaced with divine union between us, each other, and our God. And they believe it changes everything. A vision of a wonderful union that I want to explore today. Now to do so, we need to actually start with the biblical story about where this separation began. And it's from the first few pages of the Bible and the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And it's a story that the prophets assume you know. It runs underneath their message. So we need to sit with it for a second. You see, the Bible begins with God creating everything, our universe, all of reality, all life within it, and then declaring it good. And in that process of creation, he also creates human beings uniquely created to live in relationship with him, to reflect his character, to work alongside him, 
to care for his world in this garden called Eden. An image of God's intended ideal for our world and us, characterized by one important concept, union. Humans living in union with God, intimate relationship. Humans living in union with each other, no power, no harm, equality, love. Humans living in union with creation. It's an image of perfect harmony. There's actually this beautiful image of Eden where nothing in Eden needs to harm anything else to live, to exist, to thrive. Life thrives without taking life. This is the beauty. This is the beautiful image of what God intended. And everything remains as God intended. Until, of course, human beings make a mess of things. As the story goes, humanity attempts to wrestle from God the one thing they were forbidden by him. Eating from this forbidden tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A symbol of humanity trying to replace God by taking his right to determine right and wrong, good and evil in his world. And I want to read an excerpt from it. And I want to read this bit about what takes place after they eat this forbidden fruit, because I think it's important for today. We pick up in Genesis 3, verse 7. They eat the fruit. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from that tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Everything goes wrong in the scene and separation is at the heart of it. Do you see it? In attempting to replace God, they develop that sense of separation towards him. Notice the word fear enters the human view of God for the first time. He calls to them and they don't answer. Instead, they try to hide from him. And look at how it seeps into how they see and treat each other. It's that pattern of separation and shame. They realize that they're naked on their own and decide that it's shameful. That self-consciousness and shame enters us in this moment. Humanity begins to think and feel and act for the first time based on how they might be seen through the eyes of others in their mind. They develop that awareness of their differences and start to see them as that gap, something shameful that they must cover over, hide, put masks on. And finally, look at how it leads to this impulse to harm. How do they respond? When God asks what happened, in their fear, they start assigning blame for the first time. The woman did it. The snake did it. Punish them, not me. They begin to blame others for their mistakes. The union of Eden is shattered in this moment in the biblical story. 
separation floods into God's world. And from there, as the story progresses, its effects begin to spiral. That gap grows and grows, producing jealousy, then violence, then tribalism, then oppression. And the rest of the biblical story becomes about God's work to restore that union of Eden, to shape people, human beings who can and will live into humanity's original calling once again. People who can reflect his character, this ideal of Eden through how they live and seek to heal this world. This is ultimately the purpose of God's people to be reshaped into an Eden people who alongside God show the world this original way once again, which is why the prophets speak to this issue of separation as God's messengers in the Bible. Because if you read the Old Testament, by the time the prophets arise, God's people have turned away from this divine union over and over and over again. They repeatedly separate themselves from God and each other, seeking other gods and idols, turning to injustice, oppression, greed, violence. Instead of reflecting Eden, they choose to replay the spiral of Genesis 3 over and over and over again. So the prophets are sent to speak to them on this. The prophet Isaiah depicts this spiral succinctly in Isaiah 59 verse 2. We read, but your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken falsely and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads a case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments. They utter lies. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. Each time Israel turns to the separation from God and each other. The prophets challenge them to deconstruct that delusion of separation. Over and over, the prophets connect separation with God and others to the brokenness in our world, the brokenness that God wants to heal through his people, which produces some of the most confrontational prophetic texts in the Bible. Because the prophets take this seriously. They recognize that what has broken our world flows out of the gap that this separation has created. But here's the thing. In the midst of that challenge, the prophets also envisioned a time when separation would end. When God would renew union for us and our world once again. In Isaiah 2, we read the prophet Isaiah speak to this as well. He writes, many people will come on that day and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us our ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many people. I love this part. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. It's this image of this day where God dwells with human beings again where he teaches them his will rather than watching us impose our own. And look at what flows out of it, union and peace. I mean, I just love this imagery, weapons of war beaten into tools of agriculture, tools of separation 
transformed by God into tools of union, life, and provision for one another. Or how about this text? In Isaiah 65, 17, God speaks through Isaiah and gives this message. See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. And then in verse 24 of the same passion, look for this Eden imagery here. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw like the ox and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, says the Lord. A renewed heaven and earth, the renewed union of Eden. God calls and humanity doesn't hide anymore. Life doesn't take life. The desire to harm is nowhere to be found in this, this space that God is making. The prophets look towards this day, towards this renewed union between us, each other, and God. They look towards it with hope. And as disciples of Christ, here's the thing. We believe that this reality has arrived in part. That in Jesus, God met us where we were at to reunite us to himself and to each other, to show and to restore us to what humanity was meant to be. That God's Eden kingdom has exploded into our world through Jesus and the Holy Spirit and that the separation between us and God has ended. And yet, I don't know about you, I don't see Eden or union many days. And there's this tension in that. You see, we live in this already but not yet time where the end of separation is here. It's been announced. It's been brought into our reality. But that full reunion remains unrealized. And this is where the prophets, I think, speak to us today. They invite us into a story that is still unfolding. God's union is available. It is reclaiming our world, but we must choose it. We must seek it. We must enter into it so we can let him reshape us into a pocket of Eden, a foretaste of that beautiful future living in the present, showing people a different way. God's people were created to be this people, a people who through God reject separation wherever it is found and pursue and build divine union in our world through how they see, see and treat themselves, creation and other human beings within it. People who find this message in the prophets, who look to Jesus and see it embodied and believe it to be the only true purpose for our existence. And, the ultimate direction of our world story that our God calls us to be a part of. People who see no gaps, no separation, no I or me, just we, just us, just union. When they look at God, others in our world. That's the vision of union we're invited into by the prophets. And it should change everything about how we see and exist in our world. I think it should make us into people that reject self-consciousness and shame. 
believing that we are no better or worse than anyone, that even the most broken parts of us are human and can be renewed if we just stop trying to hide them. That in our God, there is no condemnation, no shame, just the offer of renewed union here and now and healing promised through it. I also think it should make us into a people sold out to deconstructing any delusions of separation that we still hold. It should make us into people willing to identify where we see and feed those gaps that we perceive between us and others, calling them what they are, delusions, quite frankly, sin. When we see those gaps, we need to commit to deconstructing them because we're called to be a part of something more, to be part of the renewal of our world. And we can't help heal the world of what still runs rampant in ourselves. So we must commit to shrinking those gaps, to bringing union in how we see other people in our world. The world needs us to. And finally, it should make us people who embrace union in everything. People who see every human being as God does, as a child who reflects him as ourselves. And then we should treat them accordingly, not once they become ideal, but where they are at. We need to treat them with love because the truth is this, and hear this church, how we treat the person we see as most separate from ourselves is how we treat our God. And that should change fundamentally how you think about, feel about, respond to that human being. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it best. He put it this way. God loves human beings. God loves the world. Not an ideal human, but human beings as they are. Not an ideal world, but the real world. What we find repulsive in its opposition to God, what we shrink back from with pain and hostility, namely real human beings, the real world, this is for God, the ground of unfathomable love. This is the story the prophets invited us into. And that is the message of union. And I think that is wonderful. I mean, am I the only one? Am I the only one who could see more union and myself and my world. So as we close, as we sit with this call to union by the prophets, the end of separation, I want to leave you with some questions. Will we be a people who reject shame, hiding, living through the eyes of others? Are we willing to bring this future vision to the present? through how we live in our world? Are we willing to become people who hammer our swords, our resentments towards those people, our desire for their pain, our tools for their harm, bitter words and justice towards those we see as less than manipulation, deceit? Are we willing to hammer those tools into tools of union, prayers of redemption and reconciliation, thoughts of blessing and gratitude, actions of generosity, justice and service? for those we see as separate from ourselves? Are we willing to let this God develop within us such a deep sense of union that we can't help but see everyone in the silly world as ourselves?
and then treat them as we would want to be treated and as we would treat our God. Because that is the message of union in the prophets. That is the wonderful invitation of union at the heart of their words. And I think that's beautiful. I think that's wonderful. Let's pray. Father God, we so often get this wrong. We so often see people as different, as separated from ourselves. And we see what it has done to our world. Father God, help us be people who long for your kingdom, who long for your union, who want to see heaven and earth overlap, who want to be a piece of Eden here and now. Change our hearts, God. Show us how to love like you and help us build your kingdom. 